The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, we're going to be talking about mindfulness and grief with Heather Sang, who is the author of Mindfulness and Grief. Uh, so we can learn how to practice mindfulness meditation that can help us reduce physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual suffering while improving our overall health and quality of life. Um, Heather is the author of this newly released book. She's also a certified Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy Practitioner, a meditation instructor, and a bereavement group facilitator. Heather's passion is helping individuals manage stress and restore balance to their lives after trauma of loss. Based on an eight-week program developed by Heather herself, Mindfulness and Grief offers weekly themes that incorporate meditation, yoga, journaling, and creative expression to calm the mind and strengthen the body and regulate emotions. Um, Heather lives and works in Frederick, Maryland, and is a member of the Association of Death Education and Counseling. She offers private Phoenix Rising Yoga therapy sessions and retreats and yoga for grief groups. Um, I think it's important for all of us because none of us get through life without without loss and without experiencing grief. And one of the things that I've come to understand is that grief is very individual and how one person experiences grief and, and processes it can be very different than another. And there's also, also a cultural component to how we grieve. And, and I think... Over the last 30 years, we've tried to grieve less and less as a culture. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, Heather. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, you can go back to the Civil War, which would be a whole other conversation, which is about where we started outsourcing death. And it was right around there that that we stopped taking uh, our loved ones once they died into the home. And, And as that happened, grief started getting more and more suppressed in our dialogue, in our family stories. And I'm sure there are many listeners out there, myself included, who can think of a death in the family that was either considered socially taboo or, um, or even in, in an expected death. Sometimes when a, someone dies, say, um, a, an older person where our grief becomes disenfranchised because people just don't think you need or should talk about it. And so more and more, as I think it's holistic practices are starting to rise back to the surface as our population ages, the conversation about grief is starting to happen again. And, of course, they're pioneers, um, you know, such as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And although we, we don't look at the five 
there are no five steps of grief, and you and I can talk about that. But, um, you know, she kind of started bringing that discussion back into the medical community as well. So there have been a few things that have shifted the conversation. You know, um, growing up, I come from an Irish background, and so, um, you know, my great uncle was waked in the parlor in his house, and and it was very much a, a celebration of his life. And it was right around when he died, when the Catholic Church went from black vestments to white vestments, you know, during for the service. And and it was people told stories, and they remembered him, and and it was people coming together for like three. The wake was three days, you know, three nights, three afternoons, and three nights, and and everybody got together. And at the end, of course, there was a celebration after the the um, burial. But you know, and I contrast that to. You know, a few years later, and I was in nursing school, and one of my um, fellow students, her father dropped dead very suddenly, and it was, and she was, she was from an Italian family, and we went to that wake, and people were dressed in black, and they were wailing with tears, and and just, it was overpowering for me, and and then I fast forward to when I was 33, and my best friend died very suddenly, and she had a closed casket, and I remember how hard it was to be at the wake and, and see the casket and thinking, is she really there? You know, did right. this really happen? It was so hard to reconcile her. It took me three years to really reconcile her death. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's just grief can take many forms depending on, I think, the circumstances we're in. Absolutely. You know, you have the cultural, you know, uh, your society, your family history, your family religion, your family's history of loss plus the nature of the relationship you had with the loved one that died, the manner of death, your own social standing, your own mental health, all of that plays into how you grieve. And, and so with all of those factors, it's no wonder that each experience of grief is different for each person and each relationship. So the way you grieve one say your friend might be different than the way you grieve um, an uncle or grandfather because the nature of the relationship was different, not that either was more or less valuable. And and there's not, there aren't very many places where we're given permission to grieve either. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's, it's a thing that comes up all the time, both for my clients and just out there in the world, when you think of people who are working and someone close to them dies and they have X number of bereavement days that they're given, let's say three, and then they have to come back to work because that's how they, you know, eat and pay for their shelter and food, but they're at work feeling sad. Um, How is that reconciled in the workplace? And that's, it's interesting. There's um, a great uh, grief researcher called Robert Niemeyer, and he's um, done a study, kind of a man-on-the-street study, if you will, kind of like Jay Leno. And they asked, how long do people grieve? And surprisingly, it came back that it should take people a couple of weeks to return back to a relatively normal state, which, of course, to those of us who have been through Grief, it's shocking, right? I mean, we know it's right. much longer. But for people who haven't, there's no education around it. There's 
um, you know, no strong pro- well, I shouldn't say no, of course, as a member of the death, <laughs> the, you know, death education and counselors, I know there is education, it just isn't everywhere. Uh, we don't, as a society, know how to, to create the space for people to grieve. And we get uncomfortable with other people's difficult emotions because it reminds us that at some point in the future, we may have to go through that too. Right. Right. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking my mother passed away uh, a few years ago from dementia and she died in May and my dog was supposed to get a new dog license for, for my dog in April and I had to like May 1st to get it. And with my mother's passing and trying to pull all that stuff together, I forgot and I went down like the first day of June to register my dog and the woman gave me such a bad attitude. She said, well, you know, a uh, good thing you came in today because you would have, we would have got a bench warrant out for you tonight at, at, the, at the city meeting because you hadn't, you know, gotten your dog license. And I burst into tears and right. then city hall and I said, my mother died. I said, you know, this is a dog license, but she had absolutely no, no tolerance whatsoever for the fact that, you know, my, I, my mother passed away. It was a dog. It was a seven dollar dog license. But you know, I was going to get a bench warrant because I didn't pay my for my dog's license. And it was like society just has no tolerance for for grief at all. I don't think. And that's such an absurd comparison, right? Dog license right. compared to mother dying. I had this sort of opposite experience. Now, maybe because it was at my college where I got my death and dying degree, or the day my stepfather died which was five years ago this week, I, I checked out a book on tape to listen to while I drove to his house to deliver medication that he needed after the surgery that ultimately is why he died. And, um, of course, I'd forgotten about that book on tape, and then, you know, five months later, I'm cleaning out my car, and there it is, and I'm sure I'd gotten emails from the college, but, you know, I, had, I was managing his estate, and I'm sure I ignored them, and I went in, and I was like, I'm really sorry. You know, I checked this out the day my stepfather died, and I know I owe you a fine. And the guy looked at me. He's like, I don't think you need to worry about a fine. And it's those little moments of compassion, which you don't know what you're going to get, right? You don't know if you're going to get the, we're going to, um, we were going to arrest you tomorrow because you didn't pay $7 for your dog license. Or the person who says, oh, I get it. Don't worry. You have enough going on. And I think that can be a bell of awareness for us, those of us who are aware and awake, to remember that not everybody has walked in our shoes. And many bereaved people, I'm sure you, well, well, your story illustrates it, have experienced the strange phenomenon when someone you love says something insensitive after someone dies. And you're just kind of like, wow, how could they say that? Um, for instance, one of my favorites is if I say someone close, someone died in my family and the person will say, oh, oh, were you close? Or, oh, well, they were old. Or, oh, at least you got to know them. They're these little platitudes. But they're not being said to hurt you. They're being said because that person hasn't experienced what you've experienced. And... So mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness, which teaches us to pause and to temper the situation with compassion, and we can talk more about that, that helps take the sting out of those little platitudes that come from people who are well-meaning but don't necessarily provide the comfort you're looking for. 
It's um, usually a very socially awkward interaction. <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, but it happens more often than not. And, and I talk about this even with my thanatology colleagues, you know, my death and dying colleagues, who we're human too. We grieve as well. And, you know, when we are bereaved, um, we are not expert grievers. <laughs> we, are, we might be expert on grief, but our own reaction is human too. And so it can be really interesting to be aware of what triggers you. And I guess for, for everyone who's listening, what I want to try to give today as my gift is, is the, um, the instructions of how mindfulness can help you pause, assess the situation, and not react but rather than respond so you aren't throwing fuel on the fire of suffering, whatever it is, whether it comes from addiction or grief or stress or finances. There's so many things that can rile us up and send our limbic system into overdrive and spike our stress, but there is a practice that can teach us how to not let it harm us again and again and again. Um, before we get into the to the nuts and bolts of that, one of the concepts in your book, which um, I'm was kind of embarrassed to say, it's the first time I've heard the concept of this post traumatic growth. Yeah. Um, and usually we hear post traumatic stress. So the concept of post traumatic growth was intriguing to me. Could you share with our listeners what that is? Yes, and I had the same reaction when I first um, first found it. I was just like, huh. And I want to separate it from post-traumatic stress. It's not, they're not related in that, you know, PTSD is, is about how the brain reacts to a trauma. Um, post-traumatic growth can happen for anyone, no matter how their brain reacts to the trauma and their body reacts to the trauma. So you don't have to have PTSD to experience post-traumatic growth. What you do need to have is some intense, life event. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk a little bit more about post-traumatic growth and more about compassionate healing and mindfulness. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to our second segment of One Hour at a Time, and our guest today is Heather Strang, and we're talking about um, a whole bunch of things, but mostly grief and mindfulness. We're going to get to that, I promise, but um, in reading your book, she talked about post-traumatic growth, and I we just started to talk about that before we went to break, and could you just expand on that a little bit for us, and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes of mindfulness. So post-traumatic growth is the idea that when we face a challenge in our life, whether it's the death of a loved one, um, recovering from an addiction, surviving a life-threatening illness, or even uh, maybe a financial challenge such as losing our home, most of us emerge on the other side of that loss changed for the better. Now, that doesn't mean that we, of course, wanted the traumatic event to happen, but given that it did happen, we look at our life, we reassess, and maybe our values have changed, maybe our approach to our health has changed, maybe we become more compassionate or more altruistic. There, there's no um, prescribed way of how we become a, 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 what do I want to say, a benefactor of the post-traumatic growth. It's unique to each person. And this research on post-traumatic growth is being done out of the University of North Carolina in Charlotte by Lawrence Calhoun and Richard Tadici. And I find in working with my mindfulness and grief groups that even at the end of eight weeks, which really isn't a long period of time, people are able to reflect on their story of loss, which we do through journaling and group discussion. And they're able to see the positive changes in their life. That can be held in conjunction with the sadness. But over time, usually, of course, the sadness starts to decrease and people live radically different lives. And I can give you a few examples. I had one woman, and her story is in the book Mindfulness and Grief, Mary, actually. And Mary... Her husband and and actually herself, they were both glider pilots, and her husband died in a collision. And her big goal, I believe, in working through her grief was to try to become more compassionate to the person who was responsible and to the family members. And when I say goal, it's not like she came in and that was her goal, but when she looked back, she recognized that's what she needed to carry with her um, from the group. And when, before her husband died, while they did play hard, um, she also worked hard and really thought she was going to be able to approach her grief as though it were a business plan. She was going to do each thing that every book told her to do and she was going to do it right and there was a lot of control. And through the grief process, she wound up kind of letting go that and shifting from a place of anger 
to a place of compassion for herself is where you start. You always start with yourself. And now here we are, and it's been, I believe, five years since her group, and she wound up becoming a yoga teacher. She still has her day job, but she teaches yoga, and that was her gem that she got out of her grief. Had she not lost her husband, she wouldn't have found that. And it's not just the teaching of the yoga that is the post-traumatic growth. It is the heart that goes with that. It's her ability to look at people who have caused harm and at least be able to understand the position they were in. Now, that compassion doesn't mean she has to re-engage with them. It doesn't mean she's saying it's okay. It means that she is no longer allowing it to affect her in a maladaptive or negative way. You know, it's been my experience in in counseling is that the people who try to control their grief are the people who suffer the most in their grief. Yes. It's like riding an unchained bronco. You don't get to control the grief, but you do get to control yourself. Right. Um, Now, that doesn't usually happen in the first, you know, acute phases of grief. It takes us a while and I think nature kind of gives us a nice little pause. If, if you look at um, most people's experience of grief, there's kind of a numbness that happens in the first day or two. And I do not want to say that is prescriptive because not everybody experiences that. That kind of lets people take a breath. And then usually the stronger emotions hit a day or two later. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And... And then we go through a period where some people, most people maybe, um, are in extreme physical, emotional distress. And then there's a point where they say, I'm ready to not feel bad anymore. And that's where they start picking up the book or you know, going to yoga class or starting to meditate. Um, so it is definitely a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the emotions can take a while to catch up to where the mind is. So even though we tell ourselves, I know I need to feel better, I know I need to um, get a good night's sleep, our, our emotions are usually a little bit farther behind that. So what is mindfulness and how does it help with grief? Sure. So mindfulness is the practice of paying attention to your present moment awareness through your senses, with compassion. And I'll break that down. So the first step in mindfulness, or the first, I guess, instruction, if you will, is to wake up and pay attention. And we've all had that experience of being in a trance, ruminating thoughts, or where you don't quite feel like you're in your body. And I think this is common for most of us. Whether we're grieving or whether we're stressed out, we become kind of this head on a stick where we don't really embody the moment. And so the idea is that you wake up and you start paying attention to what you hear, what you see, what you smell, taste, touch, and your thoughts. So these are called the six sense doors of the senses. And... Sensation is one that most of us can tap into most readily. So if you start to really feel your breath in your body, some people feel their breath down in their belly, some people feel it in their nose, some people feel a nice 
long breath. Other people will feel like they're barely breathing at all. If you start by just paying attention to your breath, that brings your awareness into the present moment. And that present moment awareness without that second part, which is compassion, can be just kind of cold and pointless. And so we add some heart to it. So can I just be okay with how I'm breathing right now? And that might sound really, really simple, but I teach so many people who, when I have them notice their breath for the first time, they immediately start judging their own breath. I'm not breathing right. And it's like, well, you're upright, you're alive, you are breathing right. And so that kind of gives us um, insight into the places our mind can go, the stories that we can make up. And so the other part of mindfulness instruction is to practice non-judgment, non-grasping, and just allow the present moment to be as it is. And I think that's the part that where the real magic can happen because when you start paying attention to the present moment through your senses and you start to pay attention to the story you tell yourself about the present moment, you start to learn a lot about yourself and how you just are. For instance, what would somebody, what have you heard people learn about themselves? Well, I have had people come in. I'm trying to think of one person in particular. I'm going to pick someone else from the book. I had a woman named Martha in another bereavement, another mindfulness and grief group. Martha's sister died by suicide. Martha's sister um, was, or I'm sorry, Martha, <laughs> excuse me, Martha's the one who died. Martha was... Um, an alcoholic in and out of recovery, and Bonnie was in my class. And Bonnie was feeling a lot of guilt about her sister's death because they knew something was going on with her, but they didn't intervene. And in the first two classes, Bonnie felt like she was not doing the mindfulness practice right because she was getting colors and images in her mind when her eyes were closed, and she was trying to rearrange the colors. Okay, so here we are. This is very benign, right? She has colors in her head, and she wants them to line up like a rainbow, and she couldn't get them to do it. And she kept doing this again and again. So she's sitting, and she's frustrated in her sit. She's frustrated that she can't change the colors. And then one day, she finally sent me an email, and she realized that the point wasn't about rearranging the colors. The point was about just accepting them as they are, and she was able to take that experience, this very benign experience of colors and breath, and apply it to how she was managing her grief and her sister's loss. She was trying to go back in her head again and again and rearrange the relationship she had with her sister. She was living very much in the past, wanting to um, have it turn out a different way, which, of course, we wish we could give that to her, but we can't. And so what that allowed her to do was recognize when she was trying to control things that she could not control. So just, Almost like a metaphor. It's exactly a metaphor. Yeah, you learn a lot of metaphors. Sometimes these little nuggets of inner wisdom will show up as epiphanies where you're just sitting there and you're focusing on your breath and you're going to get distracted and then you remember you're supposed to be focusing on your breath and you come back and then all of a sudden this little nugget of wisdom will rise to the surface where you'll go, 
oh, you know what? I need to stop inciting an argument with my husband and I need to just go home and maybe smile at him and see what happens. Like these little epiphanies show up. Other times it's a metaphor, like in, in her case with the colors. And then other times you don't even know it's happening, but a few months down the road, your best friend looks at you and goes, you know, you're so much more tolerable to be around now. You're just, you're nicer. And so the benefits come in many different ways. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about the compassion part of of, uh, mindfulness. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Heather Spang today about grief and how to deal with grief. We've, we've learned a little bit about post-traumatic growth, and we're talking about mindfulness. And um, before we went to break, I thought maybe uh, we, we could talk in this segment about the compassion because I was talking to Heather during our break and said, you know, we've had a few guests that have talked about mindfulness on our show, and, and we, one of my coworkers is very much into mindfulness, but I can't remember compassion being tied into it. So um, could, could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So compassion shows up again and again. And compassion as loving-kindness, compassion as non-judgment shows up in many definitions of mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn has one where he says awareness, that mindfulness is the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose, 
in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment to moment. And by that non-judgmentally, that's compassion in this definition. Tara Brock talks about the two wings of radical acceptance being clear seeing is the first one, so that's that paying attention, and compassion, that opening your heart to whatever's happening. Because what happens when we're not mindful, in most cases when we encounter a stressor, is we either go to do battle with it or we run away from it. And when we're sitting in meditation, when we're sitting in mindfulness meditation, the idea is that we're not going to react to it. Instead, we're going to make friends with it. We're going to befriend the moment. And I define acceptance in my book, which I kind of think is one of the the goals. And you want to be careful with that word acceptance, right? That's a very sticky word. So I say acceptance in the mindful context means that even when the unthinkable happens, we honor ourselves and experience with dignity and kindness. Rather than turn our back on our own suffering, we treat ourselves as we would a beloved friend. We take the time to pay attention to the physical sensations, thoughts, and feelings that accompany our pain. And so when we're talking about compassion, we're not talking about enabling, we're not talking about sentiment, we're just talking about an understanding with an open heart and a tenderness. So one thing that is common for new, new people to, or people who are new to meditation is in that first sit, in their tenth sit, <laughs> they find their mind is jumping around and maybe they're stuck in, in a cycle of um, self-defeating thoughts or maybe they're daydreaming about dinner or replaying a thought from work. And then they catch themselves doing that, and they're like, oh, I'm no good at this. My mind won't settle down. I'm not going to bother anymore. And if they haven't been taught the skill of compassion, a lot of times they'll walk away. But the idea... That would be me. <laughs> that would be that me. Would, that would be... Well, maybe this will, maybe this will reintroduce you to it. The idea is, is maybe recognizing that you are you are in a, in a place where you're trying something new, where you, you don't have this skill yet. And so can you have compassion for the thinker who has not yet learned how to sit? Compassion starts with yourself. Um, and so rather than saying, oh, well, it's okay, I'm just going to in, completely indulge in this, and you, you go back down whatever path you're wandering down. You notice your breath, and you use your breath as an anchor to the present. You recognize that your awareness, what is coming into your sensory awareness, is actually bigger than your thoughts. Your thought is only one of the six senses that you have. And you can watch that thought without becoming the thought. So you can watch your experience and be like, oh, there I am sitting there worrying. I'm going to notice my breath now. And so it's kind of a deflection, but it's a deflection and an allowing at the same time. So, so in your book, you um, talk about this whole process of using mindfulness and grief, and it's an eight-week um, guide. So could you explain, because there's different types of meditation that people will, will do throughout the, the eight weeks and 
Could you uh, talk a little bit about why eight weeks and, and how you came up with this process? Mm-hmm. So the eight weeks is based on the fact that most research in mindfulness shows that it takes about eight weeks for us to develop this habit. So it doesn't mean that grief is going to be resolved in eight weeks. That would be ludicrous. But the goal is that at the end of eight weeks, each person will have a home practice that they can stick with. And I put the day-long retreat in between weeks four and five because I personally have found day-long retreats to be incredibly powerful. My day-long retreat is a silent retreat. We don't speak until the very end. And that gives people a chance to get to know themselves better, to understand that when they have an impulse to speak, they do not have to act on that impulse, which can be helpful in uh, teaching people how to regulate emotion and regulate behavior. It's not so much that the not speaking, you know, is going to lead you to higher ground. It's, it's that recognition that when you have an impulse, you don't have to follow it. Um, and that can curb some maladaptive behaviors. And, of course, that works well with addiction and eating disorders as well. So the way I came up with the topics for the eight weeks is I sat down and thought about what are the really important parts of mindfulness and what are the really important parts of uh, grief theory that I want to get across. And I wound up being able to, to pair them up pretty well, you know, each topic could correlate well to a topic in in grief. And I got to interview people who had participated in my group, and magically each of their stories kind of worked into a chapter. Sometimes these things happen without you even having to try hard, which is really fantastic. So I think there's about six, six stories in here that are very inspirational about how people used mindfulness and grief to to benefit from post-traumatic growth, which I think really is kind of the central theme of, of the book, even though I don't necessarily say it over and over again. My dream is that anyone who reads this book, after some time, they're going to be able to look back on their story and recognize that they have benefited in many, many ways. Um, one of the parts of your day-long retreat and, and something that you talk about is a nature meditation. Mm, which I think that's is, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, could, could you explain that as well? Yeah, is that the, the, walk, the walk in nature? Yeah. Yeah, the mindful walk in nature. That actually, in, in traditional mindfulness training, nature can play a big part in understanding that we are not independent from everything around us. We are not independent from the water. We are not independent from other people because one of the triggers of suffering is feeling separate and feeling different. And if you cannot connect to another human being, you can probably go out and connect with nature first. And when I run my my day-long groups, we actually go out and walk in a city park. And a lot of times, there, because we do the retreat on a Sunday, there will be people in the park. There will be kids playing. There will be, you know, birds in the sky and trees, and either it will be snowy or not, depending on the time of year. But what inevitably happens is people become reconnected with the bigger picture of life, and they start to recognize that there is a natural cycle 
of birth and death and that they are part of that. It can be a little overwhelming and comforting at the same time. I do this practice personally often because I hike a lot and I like to stop at the trailhead and do the body scan, which is the mindful walk in nature. So the instruction is to find a place outside, and it could be a city park or it could be the woods, depending on where you live, and you pause and you find your breath, and then you set an intention for your practice. So, you know, why am I taking this walk? Am I taking this walk because I want to stop thinking about the stress in my life and be open to the beauty and connectedness of all things that are alive? Do I want to walk for peace? Do I want to walk to reduce suffering? You come up with your own intention. And then you think about walking. Walking in it. How often do we think about actually taking a step? You know, our bodies do this amazing thing of getting us from one side of the room to the other, and we usually don't even notice it. And so in this mindful walk in nature, you start noticing walking, you notice your body, you notice the sounds, and you use those six, those six doors of the senses, which I talked about earlier, your sight, your sound, your smell, um, the sensation of your body, your thoughts, and maybe even your tongue. Maybe as you sip your water, you, you notice the taste of the water. That brings you into the present moment, so you're not worrying about the past, you're not ruminating about the future. And then after you walk for whatever period of time you choose, you close with a little gratitude practice where you pause and you scan through your body and connect with your body. And then I recommend people write in their journal for a few minutes afterwards and just see what shows up. And sometimes we were talking earlier about metaphors. Sometimes a metaphor will show up. Sometimes it'll just be that recognition of what a relief it was to spend a half an hour doing something other than worrying or working or cooking or cleaning. So it gets you out of your your habituated patterns and gets you into a new space and at the same time allows you to connect with others, whether it's trees and birds and squirrels or people in your park. Um, one of the things, too, that you talk about in your book are, are the, um, the messages that we give ourselves and being able to, to be mindful and learn those messages because sometimes those messages are the root of our anxiety or the root of our worrying or the root of our stress. Yes, and that, those messages often will come up pretty early on when you're sitting, um, when you learn to sit in mindfulness meditation after a short period of time, those recurring thoughts, or I think we like to call them those tapes, you know, that play over and over again, start to rise to the surface. And in mindfulness practice, we're taught that we do not have to indulge those thoughts, nor do we want to push them away and label them as bad. Rather, we're recognizing them with compassion, going, oh, look, I have this thought. And sometimes it can be helpful to imagine yourself as though you were yourself as a small child or, or maybe imagine that someone you love unconditionally were having those thoughts, how would you treat them? And then treat yourself with that same tenderness. So rather than berating yourself or being like, oh, I'm so bad for having this thought, just be like, oh, I recognize I'm having this thought. And then choose where you want to go next. Do you want to keep indulging it? Do you want to do battle with it? 
or do you want to just come back and notice your breath and begin again? Those two words, begin again, I probably say more in meditation practice than any two words ever. Just begin again. Don't worry about that. Let's just start from here. Well, it's nice, simple message, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you ready to laugh and learn as you get the info that will get you fit? Small steps can lead to big changes once you're headed in the right direction. Join the dynamic twin sister and exercise expert team of Alexandra Williams and Kimberly Williams-Evans on Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers. K&A bring you top-level guests who offer active aging advice and practical tips you can use today. Enjoy the second phase of life with vitality, brain power, and energy. Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers airs live Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about grief and the importance of understanding that grief is part of life and that there are many ways um, that we can cope with grief. And and, uh, mindfulness is certainly a great way to cope with that. And Heather Strang is our guest today, and she's written a wonderful book called Mindfulness and Grief uh, with Guided Meditations to Calm Your Mind and Restore Your Spirit. Heather, how can people um, get your book or get in touch with you? The book is available on Amazon as well as in many Barnes and Noble stores. So if you actually like to walk in and pick up a paper book, you can get it there. Um, and as well on my website at mindfulnessandgrief.com. If you get it there, I'll even sign it for you if you like. And you had talked about you have guided meditations as well. I do. Available? If you go to mindfulnessandgrief.com. There are several guided meditations that you can stream on your smartphone or on the computer, including the body scan meditation, a mindfulness of breath meditation, and the compassion meditation. Uh, And I'm adding to those all the time. So it's a great resource and very easy to access. 
what is the purpose of grief? Why, why do we grieve? What, what is the function of it? Well, I think that's such, a, that's such a big philosophical question, but I think that the biological purpose of grief is so that we understand the preciousness of life and that we tend to it. You know, if we did not appreciate and love the people in our lives, life itself would not continue. I think that as from a spiritual side, of course, the purpose of grief is going to be different for every single person out there, but it goes back to that post-traumatic growth. I think that sometimes we don't appreciate people until they're gone fully. I think sometimes it wakes us up to being kinder to other people around us. This meaning-making that I talk about in my book that Robert Niemeyer does a lot of research on, when we lose someone we love, for a period of time, everything is completely shattered and turned upside down. But then after a period of time, most of us have a better understanding of our role in this life. And a lot of us tend to live life more consciously once that happens. So um, in, when we talk about mindfulness, um, is there a difference between mindfulness and relaxation? There is, and there's, there's a little bit of an overlap. If you think of a Venn diagram, you know, the circles that come together. So mindfulness can have the side effect of being relaxing, but because we are paying attention to the experience just as it is, it might not necessarily be relaxing at first. If we're paying attention through mindfulness practice to a sensation in our body that is uncomfortable, at first we start to notice, oh, this sensation is not, not feeling good. I'm going to get curious about it, but I'm not going to judge it. And remember, we're going to bring compassion to it. So can I bring compassion to this part of my body? Let's say your chest is feeling tight from grief, which a lot of people experience. Can I just notice that sensation without struggling it? And what will happen is after a period of time, once you stop struggling and stop fighting it, a lot of times pain and tension will dissipate. And this is a biological thing that happens. And from that, we become very relaxed. Or when we don't have a lot of stress in life and we practice mindfulness, meditation, and maybe all you have to do is go sit and breathe and you don't have any discursive thoughts, then the practice can be very relaxing. And over time of practice, so eight weeks or longer, and by the way, I'd love to see people practice for 20 minutes a day if possible and every day, but even if they did, you know, two to five minutes a day, that's better than nothing. The body is actually able to um, to switch off the stress response faster. And so there's a whole biological thing that happens where the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, and that's the opposite of the stress reaction. I think you've talked about on this, you've had guests talk about that on right. the show before. Right. Um, and right. so the practice of mindfulness, even though in that particular moment it might not be completely relaxing, over time your body is going to be able to tap into the relaxation response much quicker and you're going to be more calm and more at ease. Uh, And what I love about mindfulness is that it actually does teach you where your stress is coming from. So while it's nice to put on some headphones and listen to a 
you know, waves and, or pretty music and zone out. That's relaxation. That's not mindfulness. But what I love about mindfulness is it teaches you where your stress is coming from, where your grief is coming from, and then you can choose. It empowers you. It puts you in the driver's seat. Then you can choose how to respond to it. So there's kind of a dual thing that happens. Your body takes care of you by kicking in that relaxation response by, um, you know, turning turning the stress levels down. But then you also, as a, a human being with choices, become able to manage what you can manage and you learn to let go of the things that you cannot control. So it's very holistic in that way. And it seems like everywhere you go right now, there's mindfulness for... <laughs> Um, well, we're doing mindfulness with people that have thought disorders. There's mindfulness and dialectical behavioral therapy. It seems like mindfulness is the new buzz thing. It Mind, is. Mindful, <laughs> mindful cooking or mindful hiking or... Um. Yeah, you know, it's thousands of years old, but it's the scientific research that's been slowly coming about in the past 30 years and and it's just growing um, you know the the peer review journal articles are, are stacking up and so it's that medical community's acceptance of it um, and the prominence of things like yoga and holistic health that are really bringing it to the forefront but the reason why mindfulness is winding up on the front page of, of everything in addition to that the fact that it is being proven to work time and time again for everything from eating disorders to heart disease uh, is that everybody feels better when they do it. <laughs> so, you know, you get one journalist who, who practices it and, and they want to want to shout out its benefits. So I think there's a few, I mean, this is my hypothesis is that not only is it proven to work, but when we do it, we feel better. And so people want to talk about it and share the, share the word. Share the power. Is there any downside to it? Is there any downside to it at all? No, there's the only um, contraindication is with post-traumatic stress disorder. Bezel van der Kolk, who um, is on the team that writes the entry for the DSM on PTSD, is doing some fantastic work with yoga um, and PTSD, and he teaches a course up out of, out of Kripalu and some other places. And what their research is showing is that Initially, with PTSD, a yoga intervention with, in, combined with a trauma therapist can have better effects than mindfulness because with mindfulness, you are trying to create some spaciousness and allow everything in. And if you're having intrusive thoughts and hallucinations, that can be a very unsafe place. So if anyone is experiencing symptoms of trauma or PTSD, you want to work with your trauma therapist before diving into a practice. And a lot of times they're showing that yoga, because it is so body-based and so focused on physical sensation, that that might be the right place to start for you. Thank you so much, Heather, for spending this hour with us. It's been great. we just want to remind you that the book is called Mindfulness in Grief. You can get it on mindfulnessingrief.com or through Amazon. Or through, I guess through Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. So, Heather, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Mary. I really enjoyed it. I did, too, and I learned a lot. Oh, um, have a great week, everybody. 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.